Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty, spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. So turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And what I want you to think about as we go through this, this piece today focuses on how do we talk to each other and what do we allow ourselves to feel. As we get ready to start this, I'm going to ask you for a moment of intimacy. And that is, I want to ask you how many of you have experienced enough emotional hurt, abandonment, betrayal, that you have wrestled in your life with wondering whether or not real love even existed at all? How many of you have ever felt like you were in a place where you weren't sure that love existed at all? I think it is a growing sign of our times. I think as we are more and more isolated, I think as people become weaker and weaker in the area of commitment and more and more selfish, that love itself I mean, those are components of love, aren't they? And so when we, when we experience that over and over and over again, we can end up believing that the idea of love itself is like some commercial gimmick. Contrast that with how these Christians spoke to each other. 1 Thessalonians 2 13, and I want you to imagine that you heard Christians speaking like this to each other today. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. For God's wrath has come upon them at last. When Paul wrote, he packed so much into just a few verses, and we always have to slow down to drink from the fire hose to try to understand what's being said here. First, I want you to imagine how it makes you feel when somebody says, I thank my God constantly because of you. That's the kind of thing that just would stop us in our tracks, wouldn't it? It's an amazing thing to be told that somebody prays for us. 
because I'll pray for you is an easy thing to say, isn't it? And somewhat harder to do, somewhat harder to be faithful in. Then to hear that someone is moved to be thankful to God on your behalf, that's a powerful and wonderful thing. I want you to think about what kind of community it would be for people to say this sort of thing to one another. I thank God for you constantly because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And the reason that Paul was so motivated to thankfulness by these Thessalonians, and I believe also by the Berean church that he went to afterwards, is he says, you received the word of God as it really is. And that's when I feel like we have to stop and think about that and take inventory. There's an old saying in our culture that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. And what that saying means is when I've heard something enough times, I get accustomed to it. I adapt to it. It no longer hits me between the eyes anymore as being strange or amazing. Word of God, word of God, word of God, word of God, word of God. How many times have we heard the expression? Wait a minute. Astronomers are looking at our skies. They believe that there are at least a billion galaxies of a hundred billion stars each. There is out there somewhere an infinitely powerful alien personality and intelligence that made it. That intelligence knows where we are out of a billion times a hundred billion solar systems. He knows where we are. And as small as we are in comparison to him, it was important to him to speak to us. We can no more find him, know him, seek him out than we can jump over the moon. But it was important to him to speak to us. And he spoke to us, and then he confirmed that speaking by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because we needed a clear picture of something that couldn't be done any other way except by the hand of the Creator. We needed evidence that couldn't be disputed because we would dispute it. It is an unbelievably fantastical, wild idea that the creator of a billion galaxies times a hundred billion stars would care about us, would know where we are, would take initiative to speak to us. It's a fantastical idea. And 
we have here his word. If astronomers at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence found a repeating radio signal from Epsilon Arundhati or Alpha Centauri or Fomalhaut II or Rigel or any of those stellar systems out there, if they found a repeating radio signal that could be identified as structured with intelligence, if it was 15 syllables long, it would be the most shattering news on the planet. And here I have 66 books of the Word of God already delivered and confirmed by the, the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, I thank God all the time because when you received this Word, you received it as it really is, the Word of God. Familiarity breeds contempt with us. We've heard the expression, we've gotten the idea so often that we aren't knocked completely out of our chair by it. We ought to be blown away with our hair streaming back that this God is very real and has reached out to us. You received it as it really is, the Word of God. And that Word of God is that which is at work within you. Energeo. Where we get the English word energy. It is the engine inside of us for transformation. It is how we are being changed by the Holy Spirit. It is the power, quite literally. Energeo. It is His Word, which is the energeo inside of you. It's why churches where the Word of God is not promoted, moving, taught, focused on, evangelized, it's why... There's such a difference between happy talk on the outside and transformation on the inside because it takes the creative power of the creator of the universe to transform us. This is the word of God that is operating, energizing, working inside of you. If, if we want to be different, if we want to be the kind of people or the kind of church that God wants us to be, it is absolutely, and I use that word intentionally, it is absolutely impossible for us to get there on our own juice. We don't have the mojo for this. Only the Creator God has the energeo, the power, the dunamis, to remake the creation that he made, to transform us into something divine. It is at work in you, believers, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Let that soak in for a little bit. Here's a bunch of Thessalonian, they're almost Greeks, 
under the empire of Rome. They have literature. They have a philosophical system. They have the most effective government that had happened in the history of the world up until then. They are the inheritors of the whole Greek systems of philosophy through Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And what's inspiring these people? A bunch of backward agricultural Jews in the armpit of the empire, Palestine, who have received the word from God. They saw the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now they're being persecuted for it. So now these educated city types have believed this story. And they themselves are willing to be persecuted for that story. How could that be? How, how could a bunch of uh, bachelor or master degree students suddenly decide to believe and suffer the same things as the guys in Bethlehem? And it is because they were transformed. They took in the word of God and it recreated them. This alien power changed them so that they became loving and holy and faithful and hopeful. And it altered them from being normal human beings to these alien creatures in the earth. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's why you see these antennas on my head. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels, these foreign beings, some of them have multiple eyes all over them. Some of them are on fire and fly around and sing hymns that make stone buildings shake. These are not normal earthly things. We don't have the power for this transformation. But the Word of God does. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And here Paul allows himself a little anger. These people who killed the Lord Jesus, these same people who have a heritage of killing God's prophets, they drove us out. And it's so funny. I mean, think about these people as religious people. And the spooky thing is you've probably known people like this. Religious people who aggravate God. You know, you would think religion is supposed to be about God and that it's supposed to depend on His initiative. How can people get so hard-headed about that which is supposed to come from God we can get so hard-headed about that that if God were standing right in front of us, oh yeah, he was, if God were standing right in front of us, we would tell him he's doing it wrong. You're not supposed to heal on this day of the week. You're not doing the washings that you're supposed to do. Why aren't you fasting today? What's the matter? You're God. Why don't you know how to do religion? 
So we've got a kind of religious human being who aggravates God by the way they do religion. And then they become hostile to all mankind. Certainly it couldn't be that there would be churches that hate everybody else but themselves. Certainly that doesn't exist. Surely people today reading this could see this trap and would avoid it. Or is it what religion looks like when untransformed people who have not been changed by divine alien energy try to create something religious on their own? And so it looks terrifyingly human mean-spirited, selfish, narcissistic, competitive, controlling, all of those wonderful adjectives that describe us in our natural state. They hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. That means to pile them up to the point where God decides to execute judgment. God's wrath has come upon them at last. I'm so curious what Paul saw. What did Paul see? This letter was probably written somewhere around 50 to 56 AD. Nero is on the throne. Craziest of all Roman emperors. His rule actually went pretty well for a while because he was so busy pretending to be Hercules in the uh, Olympics and so busy pretending that he could play the violin that he actually didn't bother running the empire for quite a long time. And he had a fairly effective general who was running the army and a famous philosopher who was running the government. And so the first years of the 14-year-long reign of Nero went pretty well. Things went to heck in a handbasket when he got serious about being emperor. <laughs> That's when things got bad. And that happened a little later. But you see, by 70 AD, only about 15 years after the writing of this letter, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So I'm very curious what Paul is seeing when he says God's wrath is coming upon them at last. There will eventually be imperial legions turning the corner of the Mediterranean and coming down the um, side, the coast of the Med, where Syria and Lebanon and Palestine are, and they will eventually disassemble Jerusalem, burn it to the ground. There is a level of brutality there that is absolutely unfamiliar to us as they even kill children for sport in the destruction of the city. That siege will go on for three years until finally Masada lays taken. And of course the amazing thing is that the man who writes this had received the alien energizing and transformation of his inner self because he used to be one of those persecutors. He used to be one of those people who was hostile to all other people, who irritated God with the nature of his religion, and who was persecuting this very same community of Christians that he's complaining about being persecuted. 
And now he's one of them. How does that happen? Transformation. And Paul then comes back to his audience. You know, his mind has wandered over to Palestine and his anger about those who try to stop God's work and who try to persecute his people, his anger, he pulls that back and he focuses back at people that he's writing to. And I want you to hear his love for them. We've got to hear this love because this is part of what it means to be a New Testament church. But since we were torn away from you, it's a violent image. I wanted so bad to be with you. I was pushed. I was herded. I was shoved out of Thessalonica. I loved what I was experiencing with you here. And I got dragged out of the city when we were torn away from you for a short time. And I want you to know, I may have been torn away in person, but I was never torn away from you in heart. My heart was always with you. Hear that closeness, that longing? That's a New Testament church. And this is the kind of language that these people spoke to each other with. We endeavored the more eagerly with great desire. <laughs> it's kind of a complicated way to say that, isn't it? We made every effort out of great passion to see you face to face. I tried so hard to get back. I did everything I could to get back to you. I want you to hear the emotion of that because that's, that's so much the heart of this letter and that's so much the heart of this community is this kind of connection to each other. This verse right here has a word in it which has a sentimental connection for me because it is the very first Greek word from the New Testament that I did a word study on the very first word that I ever studied. And it is the word spudazo. Spudazo. It is a word for running. In fact, our English word speed comes from the beginning of this word spudazo. Speed comes from it. And the idea of spudazo is you're making an effort in a direction that is so close to everything you've got that you can't hardly think of anything else. At, at my age, when you go running, if you have not, if I have not built my endurance up enough for the level of running that I'm doing, I experience this tunneling of my vision. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like these parts of my brain are going, I don't have enough blood like this. And my vision tunnels in and all I can hear is my own breathing and my thighs are going, are you crazy? Running like that is a consuming thing and it shuts out a lot of the rest of the world. And that's what spudazzo is. My old favorite Bible, the 1984 New International Version, almost every single time the word spudazzo appears, translates it, make every effort. I love that. 
Make every effort. I hear this echoing from the NIV 1984 when I read it. We made every effort to come and see you. Indeed, I, Paul, did so again and again. And then I want you to see the reality of the spiritual battle. But Satan stopped us. You'd be surprised how seldom the name Satan occurs in the Bible. It actually doesn't happen all that often. But here is an apostle of Jesus Christ who has tried so hard to get back to this church. The only thing that was able to stop him was the devil himself. The devil is real. Transhuman, super powerful, beyond human intelligence or comprehension. It's an unearthly power and is absolutely opposed to all the work and purposes of God. He is a person, he exists. And he can at least temporarily stall the production of good things in this world. Satan is probably the primary reason we misunderstand the book of Proverbs. When we read the book of Proverbs, God lets us know what the natural order of things is. If you would live this way, with this divine wisdom, then these will be the results. And sometimes we get upset because we move in that direction and somehow something breaks in that torpedoes the results we were trying to get. And we don't understand why doesn't the book of Proverbs work? One of my very best professors ever used to say to me, say to the class, this brilliant, brilliant statement, the reason the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes are in the Bible is so we would not misunderstand the book of Proverbs. And I love that. I've been thinking about that for 20-some years. Satan is real. And the effect of evil is real. And people can be faithful to God and suffer terrible things because of the work of evil in the world. The whole prosperity of a nation can be in decline because of the operations of evil in that land. Not that anything like that is happening now. Now, in verse 19, I want to alter your value system. I want to alter it because we see it here in the Word. I want you to see what these Thessalonians mean to Paul. See what they mean to Paul. For what is our hope? What is our joy? What is the crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ and His coming? Is it not you? You. American Christians, we are so funny. We are so independent and we are so materialistic. 
we hear about heaven and we wonder what kind of wealth we're going to find in our mansion walk-in closets. And anytime we don't have enough money, we can just dig up a piece of those streets of gold and pay for anything we need. Paul's life has become incredibly simple. He is a brilliant, complex man. But his focus of life and his thinking is so simple now. He wants to see his brothers and sisters in heaven. That's why he says, this is my hope. This is my assurance. This is what I'm looking forward to. I'm endeavoring for your life that you will make it devoted to the Lord. You are the reason why I'm working. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I am under obligation to both the Jews and the Greeks. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He doesn't want anybody to miss heaven without making a really firm choice that they'd rather not go. We are the treasure. What is our hope? What is our joy? That sense of fullness and blessedness that we have that, and this is almost definitional, this is almost how you define the word joy, it is independent of external circumstances. Joy is independent, that means it's not connected to external, that which is going on around you, circumstances, your situation. Joy is independent of external circumstances. That's practically the definition. It is a spiritual gladness a spiritual fullness that has to do with your relationship with God, things being right with Him and you, and you knowing that He is glorified and He is going to win. Happiness depends on external circumstances. Joy does not. You and I had brothers and sisters who died in the Roman arena some of them on fire, some of them being attacked by lions, and they died singing in the arena. Singing. There were Romans in the crowd who were converted by the singing of Christians as they died because the Romans could perceive that with all of the material whatever that they had, they did not have what these people have who were losing it all. That's why Christians get to a place where they're willing to be incarcerated. That's why Christians get to a place where they are willing to become the enemies of their own governments. That's why Christians are willing to forgive and help people who murdered their children. Because joy is independent of external circumstances. It is alien. It is an alien satisfaction. It is an alien fullness. It is a thing which exists because of the presence of God. 
rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Philippians 4, 6. Who's writing it? A man falsely incarcerated by the Romans who will starve if his friends don't bring him food because the Romans found it cheaper to run a prison if you don't bother feeding the inmates. If you didn't have friends outside to bring you stuff, they didn't have to hold your cell as long. So a man in prison writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, with petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. Peace of God which transcends all we can ask or think or guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting? Paul does not brag about many things. But when he brags, he brags about Jesus Christ Rags about the people who are his children in the Lord, who he knows have found the gospel and they are going to heaven. He brags about them, the transformed ones. And he wants so badly to bring them to heaven with him as his crown so that he can lay them before the feet of Jesus. Take that crown off and put it down before the Lord Jesus. What is the hope of our blessing? Is it not you? Indeed, you and the glory that which shines from his life. You are my glory and my joy. When you read that, doesn't it make you want to disciple some people? How would you feel if somebody let you know that you were everything they were living for? That your salvation, that before the face of Jesus Christ, you're what matters. This is how Christians spoke to each other. This is the kinds of things that were shared in a New Testament church. How do we speak to each other? How do we let each other know and experience our love for them. Yesterday, I got to spend the day with my dearly loved wife. We spent time with each other. I joined her in a student conference that really was for her in her education. Through the day, we told each other we love each other over and over again. Paul does that with the Thessalonians. He spends time with them, like I spent time with my wife. And he tells them with great words how he loves them like Marianne and I got to do yesterday. Some of you have had a hard time believing in love. Marianne has had a hard time believing in love. By the time I had been through my court ordeals of 2008 through 2010, even though one of my two number one love languages is words of affection, I had gotten to a place where I had received so many of them that were temporary, that were lying, that were that I was surprised to discover that in the early days of my relationship with Marianne, 
cards, her words didn't touch me anymore. I didn't believe them anymore. Because I know that people are willing to say those things and then not to keep them. That they have no depth, that they have no root, they don't last. It's taken time. I know how you feel. By the time my ex-wife abandoned me and became unfaithful, I'd been betrayed in my life by loving words so often I couldn't trust them anymore. Marianne showed me her love in words because she knew what they meant to me and she just kept showing me and showing me and showing me and showing me and finally I was converted. And she kept showing me that love would be faithful and true and I could believe in them again. That's our mission to each other. To love each other well enough that we can actually begin to believe in this thing again. So could we use any better proof? Could you and I use any better proof that we need love than the fact that we lost faith that it exists? Isn't that the greatest proof we could have that we need it? That we all need to speak in love to each other. That we have to give each other a reason to believe in love again. That is what a good church in Jesus Christ looks like. That is what good Christians look like. Let's pray. God in heaven, what can we even say? We can't see anything divine except that you show us. We can't know anything of what is possible unless you teach us and fill us. God, thank you for your apostle. Thank you for your church. Lord, teach us how to love you and to love one another. Please forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our slowness to believe. Forgiveness, forgive us for our loss of hope. Forgive us of our weakening commitment in the face of that loss of hope. God be with us. We want to honor you in everything that we do and say. And we want to love each other well. In Jesus' name we pray.